Welcome everyone to Resurrection Life Church in Cadillac, Michigan. Thank you for joining us today. We're so glad to have you with us, and we pray that you encounter God's goodness through the message today. So as we've been talking about the forge, and we've been talking about the process of heating up metal, and in that process of heating up metal, one of the first things that happens is the impurities are brought out. It's brought to the surface. And we talked about that in, in week one because those impurities were self-indulgences, right? They were things that we do out of our flesh, whether it's in our mind, it's in our actions, whatever it is, it's something that we're partaking in that God doesn't want us to have anything to do with. And then we talked about, we talked about the pressures, because there's a lot of pressure in that forge. There's a lot of heat in that forge. And as it, as it makes that metal warm and it becomes where we can manipulate it and we can shape it, we put it on the anvil and we begin to apply pressure to it with a hammer. And we talked about the pressures of our lives, the things that are coming at us. What are we dealing with? What are we going through? What's trying to influence us? What's trying to shape us? Some of the pressures that we have are time, right? We talked about time a little bit. I feel like there's not enough hours in a day, not enough days in a week, not enough weeks in a month, correct? It's overwhelming. And then we talked about our identity, who we are. Who we are. Not only who we are as a Christian, but who we are through Christ. You know, we've, we've sat here... There's a lot of buzzwords right now about identity, a lot. And I think if anything, we're struggling as a society and as a world actually as to who we even are. What are we called to do? How are we supposed to operate? Our identity. We talked about perfectionism the desire to perform. Everything has to be perfect. You know, I saw a great picture online one time, and it was a, it was a picture of an apple, and this apple, was, it was a reflection in a mirror, and in the mirror was this perfectly shaped apple. Nothing wrong with it. But on the front side, on the back side, it was rotten. It was eaten from. It was distorted. It was crushed. It was no good. You see, from the inside, With that perfectionism, we have a desire to portray something outwardly that we have it all together, that we are great, that we are perfect, that we know everything. But inside, we're hurting. We're burdened, like Joe was saying. But then we talked about how pressure is essential, right? Because we have to have things in our lives and we go through things in our lives that shape us, that mold us, things that strengthen us, ways in which we learn, right? Situations that we can go through and then we look back on that situation and we see exactly where God brought us through or what he brought us through and where we are at today because of his grace and his strength and his leading. So I said, I I really think pressure is essential. We have to go through things in our lives. I'll tell you what, if I didn't have some pressure and if I didn't learn things in my life, oh, I'd be more arrogant than I already am. It's not good. So it's essential. We got to go through things. We got to learn. We got to be shaped and shaped by him 
not by what the world's trying to shape us into, correct? And then we talked about quenching. And quenching, from an outside perspective, is to put something out, to extinguish, right? A fire, we want to put it out. Something hot, we want to cool it down. But in the process of forging, to quench something is to submerge it completely in oil, all the way, covered, 100%, and pull it out. And when you pull it out, it's cooled down or cooling down, but in the same time, it's strengthened. It's heat-treated. It's really set in place. That's one of the final shapes of that, that piece of metal that you've been working with. You see, God is strengthening us to fight the good fight, isn't he? I said over the last few weeks, this world is a battlefield. Each and every single day, hour by hour, we fight a spiritual war, whether you want to believe it or not. Let us not be duped. The devil in which we fight is very, very real. Very real. He wants nothing more to bring us defeat. And we read that in John 10.10 because his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, correct? We hear that over and over and over again. He's ruthless, determined, and cunning. He desires for us to be idle and silent. He doesn't want us to grow. He doesn't want us strengthened. He wants us quiet. He wants us silenced. He doesn't want to wait for us to get prepared. He doesn't want us submerged in that oil. He doesn't want us to come out. He wants the element of surprise. He wants the first shot, really. But you see, through this forging process, we are equipped for this war, aren't we? God has given us his word and spirit so that we will have wisdom and protection to stand against the devil. Paul tells us of the word and the spirit while he's bound in chains in a Roman prison. A Roman prison in which is just about completely dark. You don't have any food. It's cold. There might be one toilet amongst all the prisoners, so the stench is unreal. Unhealthy conditions, wounds that are untreated. You're usually shackled. If your feet are shackled, you can't move. If your arms are chained, you're chained for 23 out of 24 hours a day. Now, I can't believe Paul is in this prison and in this moment where he's writing Ephesians, he's writing to the church, and he's telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, if I was in that situation, I don't know how he is so focused and determined to share that. Because me, I'd be complaining. The conditions here are awful. There's no food. There's no water. You see, it's so easy to turn things around, isn't it? But Paul's determined, Paul's focused, Paul's strengthened. That road to Damascus was not a mistake. Paul tells us that the enemy that we face is cruel. He's vicious and he's always scheming. But see, we've been set free by Christ. We have the power to never be bound and we have the power to overthrow the chains. We do. We have that power. You see, like Paul, we have the same Holy Spirit that gives us strength to not be silenced by the enemy. How many of us would rather sit idle and quiet? 
I'm not saying that you have to go and, and protest and be outspoken or anything like that, but what I am saying is, is you have to stand firm in what you believe. You have to stand firm in Jesus Christ. And I think to silence the enemy, we need to be suited up and ready for the war, don't we? You see, I was thinking about the forge. I've used this towel every week because I sweat like crazy. I think about the forge, and I think about that process of heating metal up over and over again, and I think of knights and King Arthur. By the way, King Arthur, I had a really good King Arthur experience this summer. I literally pulled a three-foot steel bar out of a tree. It was amazing. I'll tell you about that later. But in this forging process, armor's made, isn't it? Armor's shaped, armor's sized, it's fitted. You know that we, we have armor. God has forged armor for us, and we read about that in Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. Put on all God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on the salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Laura didn't know what I was preaching about this morning when she read that verse about God being our shield. He's prepared something for us already. The belt of truth. A soldier in this time had a leather belt that he tightened around to protect his loins. What's his loins? Right here. His abdomen between his thighs, his growing, right? He's protecting his guts. The other part of that belt is holding up the robe so he doesn't trip. It's holding his forged dagger or his forged sword, his weapon of choice to fight the war that he's about to fight. The belt of truth represents the integrity of a Christian. Integrity. In our armor, our integrity is what holds all of our stuff together. It's our integrity. We need to have integrity in the small things and the big things because without it, we're going to lose the battle. How's your integrity? Because we've talked about that for the last five weeks, haven't we? Where are you? Where's your mind going when you're alone? What are you participating in when no one's looking? Can you answer if you are a man or woman of integrity? Can you say yes? We have the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate would usually be made of forged steel and woven chain. It was used to protect the chest, the vital organs, our lungs, our heart. For Christians, our breastplate of righteousness, it's our righteousness. You could say purity as well. Because are we pure? 
free from immorality. You see, this is the place in which we want to act in accordance with Jesus' teachings. We want to be a representation of him to the world and before him, don't we? The devil wants to attack us with lies. And as we've discussed over the last few weeks, the devil wants to attack us with impurity. Those self-indulgences. Those lusts of the heart. He wants, he wants to come at us over and over and over again. He wants our eyes and our minds and our hearts to wander so that we give in to temptations of the flesh. We don't know what weighs up or down. You see, the devil's end game is to get our hearts and our minds. He wants full control. He's looking for a crack in your armor, isn't he? And don't think for a second that he doesn't know where that's at. Why is it called the temptation? I ask myself, if I am standing before God here and now, how is my character? How's my character? How's my attitude? How are my actions? How are the words that I'm using? You see, am I protecting my heart with righteousness? Not self-righteousness, righteousness. Do not expose your heart to the impurities of this world. Do not give in. Then we have the shoes of peace. And at the time Ephesians was wrote, Roman soldiers, they were the top. They were the baddest of the bad. They were feared everywhere around the world. A Roman, a Roman soldier, it's called a caliga, it was his sandal or his boot, they were hobnobbed, which means they had metal nails drove through the soles of those shoes. And they were drove through those soles and drove through those shoes to give them footing. They're similar to like football cleats today, only they were longer and sharper. The soldiers wore these because they needed solid footing when fighting in a battle, and they needed to be ready to go at a moment's notice. A moment's notice. Unless we have solid footing, we're never going to be ready for war. And it seems odd that we have shoes of peace to fight in a war, right? Doesn't that seem... Directly opposite. We don't think much about our shoes. We don't think how comfortable they are. We take them for granted, especially when we're in a battle. But shoes allow us to step freely without fear while we turn our full attention to the battle that's in front of us. We can walk wherever we want. We can go where we need to go with no worries. You see, these shoes are referring to the gospel. The gospel of peace. The New Testament tells us of the gospel. You see, it's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of grace. The gospel of goodness. The gospel of peace.
I have a Greek and Hebrew dictionary. I can't read hardly a word in it. But I look up things every now and then because I wonder, like, what are they speaking about? Like, what are they meaning? What are they referencing? Like, love has a lot of different, time has a lot of different explanations and words, the way it's used in the Bible. But the Greek word for gospel is eugelion, which means good news. It's good news. Are you firm-footed in the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you know why you walk through the doors today? Do you know why you're sitting where you're sitting? Do you know what you're called to do as a Christian? When the devil comes at us for battle, he uses everything that he can. He throws daggers of frustration, doubt and discouragement to try and cause us to stumble, right? Because if we stumble, we lose our footing, don't we? The devil wants the terrain in which we walk to be painful and filled with fear. The gospel of peace allows us to travel the painful trials and tribulations of life without fear, firmly planted and ready for battle with the good news. And that good news is God's word. We are to take that every single place we go. So ask yourself today, are you firmly planted? Are you ready for any terrain that comes across your way? Are you ready to cross anything that you must cross on on behalf of God? Then we have the shield of faith. A shield in, in Roman in the Roman Empire, two foot wide, four foot long, made of wood. It was covered in leather, well-oiled leather. Because if you know about leather and you don't oil it or you don't tan it properly, it dries out, and therefore it can actually light on fire. So the enemies in which they were fighting had fiery darts or arrows thrown at them or shot at them. They were lit on fire with pitch or tar or sulfur. And if that leather wasn't well-oiled, it would easily catch on fire. So this shield was a way of them protecting themselves. You see, Satan's fire, he's firing flaming arrows of doubt at us daily. And we need that shield of faith to protect us. The doubt is subtle at first, and it tries to slowly burn down our shield, doesn't it? You see, it only takes one spark to light a fire. I read this quote one time, and I liked it. It says, you can make a million matches from one tree, but it only takes one match to burn a million trees. And that's the truth. That one little spark of doubt, that one little spark that he tries to put in there can light a forest fire in your mind. Are the arrows of doubt burning inside you? Are you letting a spark ignite a wildfire? How are you taking care of your shield? How are you feeding your faith? Then you have the helmet of salvation. I think this is pretty self-explanatory. We want to protect our noggin. We got to cover that bad boy. You see, when we make a decision to follow Christ, our mind is being transformed in the renewing of him, isn't it? Our mind is being transformed. 
I can tell you prior to giving my life to the Lord, I operated out of selfish desires. I still operate out of selfish desires. I, I don't think as much, but it's still evident. My mind wandered to and fro everywhere. I wasn't content in anything that I was doing, whatever I had. And as a Christian, I'm assured of one thing that will never be taken from me, and that's my salvation. You see, I have a changing, a renewing of my mind. I know without a doubt that I am saved. I know without a doubt, and that is one thing that will never ever be taken from me. We talked last week about baptisms, didn't we? That immersion into the water, into the oil, and coming out strengthened, and we related that to baptisms. We talked about that being a step in our Christian walk, in our Christian faith, didn't we? Can you walk out of the doors today being assured and rested in your salvation? And we have the sword of the Spirit. We've been given the greatest weapon of all time, God's word. Jesus used this very weapon while tempted in the wilderness. The devil tried over and over again to tempt Jesus. And Jesus just recited the words of his father right back to him, right back to him. Eventually the devil left. You see, God has a plan for your life. But what we don't always hear is that the devil has a plan for you too. The devil has a plan too. He's trying everything that he possibly can to come at you. Have you decided which one you're willing to listen to? Have you decided which one you're going to follow every single day? Because I'm here to tell you, if you have not made the decision to follow Christ, the temptation of the devil is going to be so overwhelming and so strong and so hard to break free from that we eventually cave. We give in to temptation. We give in to self-indulgences. We give in to desires. We give in to the world. We give in to lust. We give in to greed. You see, God gives us specific instructions to us in his word. He gives us all that we need to stand strong in this life, doesn't he? But how many of us race through busy days, full days, ill-equipped, unprepared, and simply not aware of what we're up against or who the real enemy even is? Turn the news on. You want to not, not know up and down or left and right? You see, we've been forged a mighty armor that God made himself. And I'm asking you today, and I'm asking you in this series, are you willing to wear it? And if you're willing to wear it, are you willing to use it? Over the last couple of weeks, I've talked to people. People have talked to me and, and about this new life, these new things that are happening in their, in their lives, in this, this series of The Forge. People have asked, what do I do? How do I do this? We talked again about baptism. 
But previous to baptism, before we get baptized, the first thing that we need to do is we need to repent. We need to repent. That's not a dirty word. Take it for what it is. We need to repent. Acknowledge what it is. Acknowledge what we've done. Acknowledge where we're at. One person said to me on the phone the other day, they do repent. They're remorseful. The blunt person that I am said repentance is not remorse. I'm sorry. Well, what's remorse? I said it's more along the lines of being sorry that you got caught. It's not repentance. Another person asked me, I was leaving the other day, Tuesday, somebody asked me, they said to me, they blame themselves. How do they get over that? They blame themselves for the bad things that are happening, that are going on in their lives. That's not repentance either. That's self-condemnation. That's self-condemnation. Self-condemnation opens the door for guilt, and it's a total loss of hope eventually. That's not repentance. You see, we're supposed to hate our sin. We're not supposed to hate ourselves. Hate your lust, hate your pride, hate your greed, hate your self-indulgences, hate your sinful passions, hate the way in which we've fallen, correct? Hate your thoughts, hate your actions, hate your impurities, but do not hate yourself. Do not hate yourself. Self-hatred leads to destruction. Destruction. It leads to bitterness. It leads to resentment. Resentment leads to death. So what's repentance? I'm glad you asked, Denny. Thank you. The dictionary tells us repentance is to change one's mind, to regret and change your way. Repentance is not a sign of weakness. I always thought it was a sign of weakness. Repentance is not scary. Repentance is not saying that you're not worthy. Repentance is power. Repentance is action. And repentance, in my mind, is actually heroic. It's an opportunity. It's something we get. You see, repentance is an action. It's an act that breaks the chains of imprisonment. With repentance, we have conviction. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from the sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for the kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. I'm not bringing doom and gloom. The fact of the matter is it's right here. We're called to do it. We need to do it. Every single one of us knows right from wrong. Every single one of us. You see, I, I was in Canada one time. I was 18, so you only can imagine what I was doing in Canada when I was 18. And I was coming home late one night, and I had a bunch of friends in the car. And I started driving the wrong way on a one-way road. The wrong way on a one-way road. When you, has anyone ever done that? One two, three, couple, okay. When you're driving the wrong way on a one-way road, all the cars are parked in opposite direction. 
The people are walking in opposite directions, it seems like. All the road signs are facing the other direction. Everything about the scenario is screaming at you that you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. The Holy Spirit does that. He knocks at your door when you're going the wrong way, doesn't he? You see, but conviction is not repentance. Conviction is a part of repentance. Conviction is the alerting of danger that's coming ahead, isn't it? It's about to get to you. You're approaching it. Conviction is the Spirit of God knocking at your door. And along with repentance woven in with conviction is a contrite heart. What's a contrite heart? Isaiah 66, verse 2. My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humbled themselves, have a contrite heart, who tremble at my word. Psalm 51, verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. You see, a contrite heart, according to the International Bible Encyclopedia, is a heart in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt. Guilt. The Greek and Hebrew translate to a, a heart that is crushed, crippled, or broken. When a contrite heart is at work, our conscience is crushed by the weight of our own guilt. A contrite spirit is present when we stop justifying why we are doing what we are doing and awaken to the depth and the magnitude of our wickedness, our self-indulgences, and accept God's condemnation of sin. He's not saying, I don't love you. He's not saying you're not worthy. He's not saying you don't matter. He's saying acknowledge and recognize what you are doing. Come clean. A contrite heart will offer no excuses. A contrite heart does not try to blame. A contrite heart shows sincere regret. A contrite heart fully agrees with God in the evil that is taking place. And a contrite heart throws itself upon the mercy of God. And a contrite heart will live with the Father. It will live with the Father. Isaiah 57, verse 15. The high and lofty ones who live in eternity. The holy one says this. I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those who repent with repentant hearts. Do you have a contrite heart? And the last part of repentance is Change. And we talked about it a little bit already. It's a renewing of the mind. It's a changing of the mind. We've talked, too, about will, haven't we? We have will. We have freedom of choice. We, ha we have the ability to make our own decision, don't we? You see, but I think when we're contemplating repentance and we're thinking about repentance, our will is at play, isn't it? 
our will will make an about turn. We will go the exact opposite direction of where we were headed. The change of will is our part. The change of will is our part. Repentance is on us. Salvation is from God. And I'm going to tell you right now, that salvation, if we want that, we want that freedom. I asked you a couple of weeks ago, or I asked you last week. We are all going to live forever, every single one of us. We just have to choose where, don't we? We have to choose where. That opportunity to live with him, to live in heaven, to live in eternity with Jesus Christ comes from one action, and that's repentance. It's fully acknowledging what we've done, we understand what we're doing, and we're giving our heart to Jesus Christ, and we understand that he died on the cross for our sins. It's simple. Repentance is the bringing of our mind, our heart, and our will under the action, under God's heart, God's mind, God's will. Repentance is to change. Are you willing to change? Are you willing to go a different direction? I wrote this down this morning. I said, do we want a changed life? Do we want a a changed family? Do we want a a changed business? Do Do we want to change generational curses that are in our families? Do we want to change the things that are coming at us? Do we want a changed spirit? Do we want a changed heart? Do we want a changed mind? All of those things come through one action, and that's repentance. Repentance is the first step to this new life. And we all have that opportunity. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his desire and his ambition and passion to live for you, Lord. We thank you for the armor in which you forged for us. Lord, I don't want there to be a day in which my feet hit the floor that I am not suited up on your behalf. I just pray right now, Heavenly Father, that that you give us strength, that you give us courage to make that change. I pray right now, Lord, that you, that you speak, that you knock at the door of every single person, Lord, that's heading in the wrong way. Let us come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ in which we can share, in which we can uphold, in which we can strengthen, in which we can encourage. Give us those opportunities, Lord. Speak to our hearts. Lord, we're not giving up. We're giving in. We're understanding. We want to be molded by you. We want to be forged by you. We want to be shaped by you. 
And that's what we're doing, Heavenly Father. Right now, we're, we're sitting here this morning. We're sitting here with a repentant heart. We're sitting here with conviction. We want to change, Lord. And we thank you that that is possible through your Son. We thank you that you, you have given us the power of the Holy Spirit, that you have equipped us to take on any adversity, any, any thing that comes at us, any terrain that we must cross. We thank you, Lord. In your precious name, amen. Last couple weeks, we've talked about not being able to really have one foot in church and one foot in the world. One hand on the door to come in and one hand gripping something from this world, right? We've talked about the opportunity to live forever and where we want to make that choice. Do we want to live forever in hell or do we want to live forever in heaven? It's your choice. John Newton. John Newton. I was thinking about him the other day. Actually, a couple weeks ago. He was born in 1725. Lost his mom at the age of six to tuberculosis. 11 years old, he was on a ship as an apprentice with his dad. Now, growing up, imagine being 11 years old and being at sea. And at that time, it was the foulest of the foul. traveling all over the world, hated his life, denounced God, hated every single person around him, contemplated suicide over and over again, gets into his 20s, is forced into the, the British Navy, meets a girl somewhere, falls in love with this girl, wants to go spend time with her leaves the British Navy unannounced. They capture him. They whip him publicly 96 times and then trade him to a slave trading ship. Years later down the road, he becomes the master and commander of a ship in which is trading slaves along the African coast up into Europe. I think it was 19, or 1740, 1848, something like that. 1748, maybe. Comes along in a massive storm. They're on the ship. Not going to survive. Cries out to God, save me. I'm sorry for what I've done. Save this crew. Save this ship. Do whatever needs to be done. He gets saved. They wash up in Ireland. Spends a few years in Ireland. Realizes what he's doing. Realizes the market that he's in. The selling of human beings. The conditions that they're in. The wrongs that he's done. The murder that he's committed. The things in his life that he needs to repent for. This same person becomes a priest. 
and he leads the coalition against slavery and it's abolished. And in 1772, he writes Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch. So many times in our lives we think that we're not worthy. So many times in our lives we think that we're no good. So many times, you know how many times I've heard people say they can't walk through the front doors because they think God will strike them dead the moment they walk into a church? We're all worthy. We're all created by God. And he has a plan for each and every single one of us. The question is, do you want it? I tell you that story because there's so many times in our lives where we feel defeated. We feel like we can't come back around. We don't have the opportunity to make that about face. We can't change the direction in which we're going. What we've done is so bad and so horrible that there is no return. And that's not true. That's a lie. So I challenge you this week to think about that. To think about your worthiness to think about the plan that God has for you, to think about the salvation that is at the fingertips of each and every single one of us if we're willing to repent, to think about the impurities in our lives, to think about the things that are coming at us on a daily basis, to think about the opportunity to be strengthened in and through Christ, to have a new life, to have salvation, to live with him eternally. You guys be blessed and have a great week. We're honored that you are with us today. Please connect with us because we want to get to know you. Head to our website, getreslife.org. That's G-E-T-R-E-S-L-I-F-E dot org. And like us on Facebook, Resurrection Life Church Cadillac, for upcoming events and information and ways to connect. God bless you and have a beautiful week.